So just coming into the body, doing any shifts you need to do to start to settle into the body. Do you need to do any gentle stretches? Anything to help bring you into your posture of basically a spine, uh, the center of the body that can be alert, but also relaxed. So can the shoulders sit on the torso in a way that feels upright, but also feels quite relaxed. And you can close your eyes if you want, or um, a lot of times in uh, modes of traditional Buddhist mindfulness, we, we leave the eyes half open or sometimes fully open. So whatever you feel most comfortable with. I'm just going to spend the first minute or two just simply coming into the body without necessarily meditating. So it's kind of like a secret way to meditate. <laughs> but sometimes I notice when I get to the cushion, I have this strong wish to do something or to get something. So when we just come to the meditation cushion and just allow a sense of relaxation, a sense of presence with the feeling in our body, sometimes it can interrupt that strong goal orientation. And instead, let us just find a natural mindfulness. So here, in the next few minutes, you might just find a natural mindfulness. I mean, I'm going to go into a lot of teachings on it tonight. But sometimes it's, it just clicks in. It's, it's easy. We don't have to think about it so much. Sometimes it's not. So here, just feeling the flow of the body, particularly more the sensation in the body. Feeling of your feet on the ground. Feeling of your seat below you, of your hands on your lap or on your knees. And probably what some of you are noticing already is how the body feels. And it might not feel one way. You might notice pleasant sensations. You might notice unpleasant sensations. And sometimes what we notice is more neutral sensations. So here we're not really going into mindfulness of feeling necessarily, which is part of the second foundation of mindfulness. But what we're going to do is simply... Just meet the body as it is, and you can recognize those feeling tones, but they're kind of secondary to just letting yourself be in the body. So I think relax is a tricky word, because sometimes for us in the modern world, relax means forget about everything, check out, kind of become like half asleep. But here when we just relax into the body before meditation, there's still awareness, there's still kind of the mind that's watching very gently. Not too heavy-handed, just very gentle, mostly just allowing the body to be what it is. So we'll practice this a few minutes.
So in essence, we're just allowing ourselves a moment to rest with awareness. That's what we're working with right now. Resting with awareness. Awareness is this quality of mind that can bear witness. But again, not so heavy-handed here. So resting in the body, bearing witness of the body. From this place of bearing witness, perhaps we found a little bit of softness in our experience and we can take this softness, just maybe even it was just a brief moment of letting ourselves bear witness, not fighting our experience. Maybe we're noticing anxiety or tension. So if you haven't yet, just giving yourself a moment to notice that that's an experience that's happening to you. So it is happening, we're not bypassing that, but at the same time we can recognize it is an experience. It will change. It's naturally going to ebb and flow, and so there can be a sense of softness, gentleness, and maybe even compassion towards it. We can start to take this into our intention for our main practice here, which is an intention of warmth, an open heart. In Mayana Buddhism, we also include others in our heart. We recognize that we're not just working with our own mind and our own problems, but we're working with them in order to become a more capable servant in the world, more capable of benefiting others, more capable of community that's wholesome and maybe even possibly from a Buddhist perspective, awakened. So we just flash that in our mind. And coming back to the body, we're starting to notice the breath. We're going to work with what mainly I'm going to talk about tonight, which is the first foundation of mindfulness out of these four foundations that the Buddha taught. And the first And usually where the sutra starts is on the breathing body, just noticing the breath as we breathe in through the nose and out through the nose. You can start by just feeling where that breath is most prevalent for you. Maybe it's at the tip of the nose, maybe in the chest, maybe somewhere else in the body. For me, I like to focus on the belly and abdomen. 
So we connect not only with the breath, but with the sensation of the breath in the body. And so the Buddha said, when you see, just see, when you smell, just smell, when you touch, simply touch, and when you feel, simply feel. So here, when we breathe, we simply breathe. And we start to turn our attention towards wherever we're relating most to the breath. And so we need a little bit of effort to allow our attention, our mindfulness to stay with the breath as an anchor there. But we also need part of our attention and awareness sort of as a kind friend to notice when we veer off from the breath. And this isn't really like a jail or a prison. It's more of a training. And so we're engaging with this training out of kindness, out of a full heart. And so we also bring ourselves back to the breath with a full heart, with kindness, when we lose connection to the breath. So there's a sense of awareness of the breathing body and awareness of when we lose awareness of the breathing body. So actually it's all awareness. But of course we're going to notice we go into periods of distraction where the mind carries us off into stories, into fantasies, thinking about the past, thinking about the future. And this is just natural. It happens as we're training. So our job is to notice that and to come back. So we'll practice like that for maybe another 10 or 15 minutes, just working with our minds, working with our bodies in this way. Very gentle, but deliberate. So it's an effort, but a compassionate effort.
So we're in our last few minutes of just our opening practice session. As you continue to connect with, be aware of, be mindful of the breath and the body in your own way, in a way that suits you and it feels natural and intuitive, we're going to start to allow the attention to breath to fade into the background and the intention to body as a whole to come into the foreground. So it's a little bit like you're taking the gas off one pedal and pushing the gas on the other. So you can start by just connecting more to where you feel the breath in the body. And then slowly you start paying attention more to where you feel the breath in the body than where you're connecting to the breath, or shall I say, letting the breath again go into the background, and just coming more into the body, feet, the legs, your seat, abdomen, chest, shoulders, hands, arms, neck, and head. And we're just simply going to bear witness to a body for a few moments. So this means Watch the form of your body. Bear witness to the form of your body. And this has to be very gentle and all the mindfulness and the presence we've been cultivating so far is used for this. So there's some effort. I'm not pushy or trying to get somewhere. Mindfulness, in a Buddhist context, one way we can divine it is being watchful. We're not watching something. So we're being watchful of the body right now, or watchful of the form. But we're not watching the form. The of there, I think, is very interesting because it means the body's allowed to move, meaning sensations will change. You'll notice different things. Mindfulness is the act as well as the experience. These are happening at the same time. Okay. So just before we close our practice, just letting the body shift a little bit. See if you can stay with awareness. So rather than kind of discarding it right away, see if you can preserve some awareness as you begin to shift out of the practice. If you've had your eyes closed, you mean opening the eyes, looking around the room a little bit. But most people, or I should say some people, what they think is like when the eyes open, the practice is done. No, 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 the practice isn't done. You're just bridging it back into the evening. It's like coming out and you know, when we wake up in the morning. <laughs> it takes a little while. It's like that. <laughs> Okay, so we had one more person join us. William, welcome. Not sure if you're there. Um, so I think what we'll do now is um, jump into just the main teaching for a little while. We can do some Q&A after that, then some practice and a little bit more Q&A. We'll just see how time goes. Um, 
What I usually like to do before giving Dharma talks is to um, connect to the lineage and to sort of set up uh, at least some of the preliminaries of, of our tradition um, in the Tibetan tradition. And I would say mm, I find this pretty universal in most Buddhist traditions where we take refuge and we generate uh, a certain kind of intention uh, for the practice, especially in, in Mayana Buddhism, it's really important to generate a bodhicitta motivation, which I'll describe. So I'm going to recite it in Tibetan and then... Uh, so while I recited in Tibetan, we're essentially reflecting here on uh, the, the outer Buddha reflected in our own inner nature, our own ability to become an awakened one or to basically eliminate suffering and accomplish all of the activities and uh, uh, manifestations of what an awakened being is or what a Buddha is. So we're, we're, we're aspiring to that as we're taking refuge in the outer Buddha, as we take refuge in the outer Dharma like the teaching and the path, we're also taking refuge in our own um, inner wakefulness, our, our potential for that. And as we take refuge in the outer sangha, which means those who have gained some deep experience and insight through practice, uh, we're also taking refuge in our inner potential uh, to become sangha. And again, I think when we think of refuge as a little uh, as less dualistic like that, we, it really also becomes more meaningful. Like for me, it's a lot more meaningful than just sort of uh, going into a theistic version. And, and Buddhism, even when we are taking refuge in an outer Buddha, it's not really a theistic practice, but some people might confuse it as that, or some of our habits with uh, early religion in our life might confuse it as that. Um, so then aside from refuge is generating a positive altruistic motivation. We call it bodhicitta in, in Sanskrit, which just means the mind of awakening. So it's a mind that that understands we're all in interconnection, we're all interdependent with each other. And so we're generating an attitude that I'm listening to the teaching, I wanna engage with it, not just for myself alone, but that I can grow my own wisdom and compassion that can also affect others in the world. So again, we're not, uh, um, I was listening to a, a teaching by Yangtze Rinpoche here, and he was kind of, it was very good, he, he, he brought out a lot of questions around, uh, especially a bodhisattva, we call it bodhicitta vow or bodhisattva vow. But it relates to just generating the intention too, where he brought out some questions around, does that mean we have to rescue all other beings? Does that mean we have to be perfect to enact this? And he was saying, no, you know, it's, it's, it's really a, it's just a pledge to practice, but it's a pledge to practice and work with our minds also on behalf of others. So it's like becomes less centered here and more centered here, like in the space that we all share. So it's quite beautiful. So I'm going to ask you to sit up a little bit, and, and we're going to meditate with this. And so we're, we're kind of meditating with this mind of refuge in bodhicitta. So if you know the chant in Tibetan, uh, you can do it with me. If you don't, you can just kind of meditate like this. Whatever meaning you caught, merge it with your heart. So it's like it doesn't just become a conceptual idea. Sangye chodan sorgi chonam lan jan chon bardu tani kamsu chi tagi jin sorgi pe sonam ki drama penchir sangye drupan Sangye chodan sorgi chonam Janchu bardo dani kyabsu chi Pagi jin sorgi pe sonam ki Trova penchir sangye drupar shu 
Sangye Chodan Sugi Chonam La Janchu Bardu Dagni Kyapsu Chi Targi Jinso Kipe Sonam Ki Drama Pensure Sangye Drupar In the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Supreme Sangha, I take refuge until enlightenment. By the merit of practicing the paramitas, may I attain Buddhahood for the benefit of all beings. So in whatever way this holds meaning for you, just merge your mind and heart with this for a moment. This becomes our intention for why we're listening to the Dharma tonight. This also becomes part of our offering not only to the Buddhas, but to the world and all beings. Okay. Thank you so much. (laughs) So, um, I've been tasked with (laughs) um, talking about mindfulness in Buddhist practice tonight. Uh, Maybe it was I'm not sure. <laughs> We're going to ask about this. So, um, it's actually quite a rich topic, and, and it really can go in a lot of different directions. So, I, I had fun kind of preparing for this today. And uh, it, it actually gave me the idea to, to do more of a, a, like a retreat on it, or maybe a day long or something, because it uh, it's quite a wide topic. So, just before we start out, <laughs> what I wanted to say, I wanted to talk about a little bit some of the foundations for setting up like why maybe uh, why Buddhist mindfulness? Because um, I think that's an important question that often it doesn't get answered that much. You just see like mindfulness and flashing lights on your in an advertisement on your social media account, <laughs> um, and it's like, well, why mindfulness? And sure, like, and then you'll hear lots of different versions of why mindfulness. Um, the Buddhisms, uh, and you'll, you'll hear why I'm saying that term, the Buddhisms also have um, uh, uh, reasons why. And so uh, before I get into that, though, I did want to uh, say something about this term, why I say the Buddhisms, or maybe Buddhisms is a better term. Um, and, you know, I just want to uh, start off by saying uh, around uh, the tradition itself, there's no one tradition of mindfulness in Buddhism. Um, we could say there's, there's things in common, um, and they're, they're pretty similar. Because most people, uh, most I would say all of the traditions follow the sutras of the Buddha. And so they, they acknowledge uh, some of the foundational teachings of the Buddha. Uh, but, but the way that expresses in all these different lineages from, you know, some of the Tibetan lineages, Himalayan Buddhist lineages, to uh, 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 Nepali, um, Zen, Chinese Mahayana, Chinese Zen, Japanese Zen. Theravada, all over, right? So there's, there's, you can see slight differences in how mindfulness is, is taught, how it's embodied, the rituals and practices they set up to, to practice it. And so I just want to acknowledge that because I think that can help us sometimes um, when we're exploring mindfulness because, uh, you know, most of you I know here are, are you know, been practicing for a long time and, 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 and well-studied. Uh, there's a few of you I don't know, so I don't know your background. Um, and maybe some people listening to this recording uh, might be newer. And, and so it can get confusing because we see, oh, this teacher said this about mindfulness. Then this teacher said this about mindfulness. What is it? What is mindfulness? Because we just want a definition, you know? 
So what I'll say is that um, uh, I'm going to give you some perspectives here and try to be clear and frame them out so you can make your own discovery through Buddhist study as well. Um, but definitely I'm not going to be able to present like the definitive idea of what mindfulness is for all the reasons that I just told you. And so I like this term of talking about Buddhisms as opposed to Buddhism. Because Buddhism actually as an ism itself or like as a, as a you know, religion or class or category is a relatively new term. You know, it's, it's one that, that I would say more you know, came out of colonialism and, and Western scholars and, and things like that just to try to talk about something. So I don't think it's problematic just as a term because sometimes we have to define something. So you say Buddhism, but what do we mean by Buddhism? And then you look around and you see, oh, they, ha they do this in Buddhism in this country and this in Buddhism in this country. And you, when you study, you see the connections, but to, the, to, the, to someone who, who's newer or not as well studied, it can seem quite disconnected. And so I like to acknowledge this and say, there's not there's not a one kind of size fits all here and that's what's quite beautiful about buddhism as well is it was it's been able to adapt and shift from country to country and i think you know i've been in some conversations lately um that's also in process here uh very much so right we're we're, we're kind of in process of figuring this out and what's how are how is this going to fit into the western you know diaspora of of sort of burgeoning meditation and all that and so, you know, like anything in the world, we, we usually fumble through things <laughs> and hopefully have what we call merit in Buddhism, the merit to uh, come out on the other side with a path that will st still have efficacy and agency towards awakening. So I think that's one of the concerns here is like getting educated about mindfulness and all these fronts. So we know uh, a wider perspective of what the Buddha taught and then, of course, the different interpretations. And then we can choose we can choose an inter interpretation that we like, that, that, that fits our mind, that works for us to orient us towards nirvana or, or awakening. So that leads me to kind of what I, how I wanted to set up this talk, because uh, like I said, why mindfulness? <laughs> you know, like why? And, you know, simply we can, uh, mindfulness itself is actually a little bit of an a, a interesting term, because usually when we talk about meditation in Buddhism, we, we talk more about awareness. So it's, it's the awareness that's, you know, we're being aware of something. We're training the awareness in meditation. That awareness goes with us from simply being, you know, with an object like the breath and concentrating on that all the way to uh, awareness of our own nature and awareness of the nature of all phenomena, which is, which is going much deeper into uh, how reality is. And it starts to bring about these qualities of awakening within us. Um, but the term mindfulness Usually, and again, it's a translation issue where a lot of uh, early translators use this term mindfulness to represent, at least in traditional Buddhism, to represent an aspect of the mind that we use in meditation, which means to remember, right? So, so drempa is the Tibetan word that, that most Tibetan translators translate as mindfulness. So it actually doesn't mean the whole meditation practice. It just means one part of the meditation where we have the main awareness of breath, right? For instance, as one one process or one practice and then when we become distracted and we lose track of the breath then you know the awareness clicks in at some point we say oh i'm distracted and then we remember to come back to the breath so that remembering in tibetan buddhism for the most part is the is the mindfulness but of course um it's used can be used slightly differently and i've heard most in most buddhist traditions it's used like that uh, sati in in the in the uh 
Pali or Sanskrit word refers to that as well. But it's kind of become this catch-all now um, within meditation in the world and, and, and meditation in, in Western countries uh, where, where usually what they mean by mindfulness is awareness itself, right? So again, just defining the word mindfulness a little bit. Then, like I said, why mindfulness? And I think <laughs> Buddhism has a really interesting setup for this. And I think, in a sense, a lot of what I've recognized, I think for a lot of years in Tibetan Buddhism, particularly, like maybe the first three years, two or three years I was studying it, I didn't, I didn't understand why they never talked about meditation. Like, you know, they talk a lot about, you know, traditionally, there's a lot about philosophy, a lot about you know, this idea of samsara, which I'll talk about in a moment, a lot about uh, our predicament and, and, and all of this. And, and I thought, well, I just want to meditate and get instructions for meditation. Why am I getting all this philosophy? And then I realized later on, <laughs> you know, it took a few years, but I realized later on, that's actually the most important part. Because if we don't have the view of why we're doing something, the something we're doing, in this case, mindfulness, is not necessarily going to go in the right direction. So again, some may argue with me on that, saying like mindfulness itself will lead to awakening. Most traditional Buddhists would disagree. You need to have some kind of intention for where you're aiming that mindfulness. And also you need to have a view of why mindfulness? Why are you doing it? So again, I don't want to uh, repeat too much of what you already know, but I did want to mention it a little bit. And so really here we have to talk about life and death according to Buddhism. And... I think, you know, this is where the richness of Buddhism comes out. Um, it's embedded within the first teaching of the Buddha, the Four Noble Truths, where the Buddha talked about dukkha, talked about how unsatisfactoriness actually shows up on every level of our conditioned life. And until we recognize that and we recognize what are the causes of that dissatisfaction, we're never going to know how to truly get free. So the way I kind of say it nowadays and frame it is what what our, what our conditioned, or sometimes we call it like a dualistic mind, likes to do is it, is it, is it has a very strong habit to simply create, want to fix. You know, we want, we want to fix something. We want to problem solve. We want to get the thing to change our experience. And, and, and again, it's not a personal thing in the sense like you or me or anyone else is bad for that. It's just a habit. We would, that's why we call it conditioned, right? It's part of, a, what, of our samsaric habit from a Buddhist perspective. It's part of duality itself. Because what duality does is it separates us out from our nature and we project ourselves outside when actually, uh, from a Buddhist perspective, we don't really need to because it's not really existing like that. But anyways, um, so this, this, this conditioning, uh, um, you know, this sense of... Uh, uh, other, this sense of, again, like I was saying, projection, then, then is the root cause of dissatisfaction. So if we're not using mindfulness to recognize that from a Buddhist perspective, we're just going to end up back in kind of a fix-it, problem-solving thing. Now, again, Buddhism also offers fixes, right? When you read practices and sutras, it, it gives techniques for coping. It gives techniques for working with um, sadness, for, with anger, uh, for working with anxiety, for working with all these things. That's, that's included, but it's always framed that those have a cause that lies much deeper. And that's really important to recognize because otherwise there's the risk our mindfulness practice will be at a very surface level. It's a little, a little bit like 
you're on one side of the road and you're looking this way and you see lots of little spot fires, right? Little fires springing up everywhere and you go with your little bucket and you start putting them out. But darn it, like, you know, every time you put one out, another one pops up and you, you put it. And you're not real, you know, we're looking this way. We're not realizing that if we just turned around, the whole other side of the road is, a, is, a, is covered with fire, meaning the whole forest, it's a forest fire moving this way and we didn't see that it, that it's a giant fire and the sparks from that are just coming over here and having little spot fires and we're putting those out so that's a little bit like like what i think happens to us when we get into this condition of, of trying to fix but again it's a really tough one because it's so embedded in us that it's it's not like we can just decide tomorrow. Well, I am not going to fix anything anymore. <laughs> just rest in this wide open mindfulness. It's a lot harder than that. So actually, mindfulness in Buddhism becomes the tool to recognize that too, right? I want to point that out. Say it again. Mindfulness becomes the tool to recognize that tendency. Actually, if we can recognize that tendency and we recognize it again and again and we can release it again and again, we're not that far from freedom or, or awakening. It's just a matter of time. So it's quite beautiful when we think of it that way. So again, in, in, in traditional sense, they would call, you know, this would be in the second noble truth of the causes of dissatisfaction or unsatisfactoriness, uh, which is, you know, afflictive emotions and, and habitual patterns or karmic habitual patterns. But that's kind of what I'm speaking on, is the conditioning itself uh, uh, propels us into believing our thoughts, into believing our view of, of what we're projecting, be it like, you know, all day long, I get them. You know, that guy's an idiot. That guy's great, right? So what's the, really the difference? You know, they're both a projection. And they both bind me to my thoughts and to my conditioned existence. So now we're getting a little bit closer to what Buddhist mindfulness is, or, or the why. The why is to undo that, right? Framing it another way, the why is to first recognize our afflictive emotions as afflictive emotion. To recognize they're causing us suffering right? And we can start to recognize this deeper level, uh, this samsaric level, where they're constantly just circling back on, on each other. And, and for me, I think that's the big aha moment. When we recognize that, we really start to gain a wish to attain freedom. You know, in Tibetan Buddhism, we spend a lot of time with Lam Rim, or, or sometimes in other lineages, they call it the four thoughts that turn the mind, which covers the lower and medium scopes of the Lam Rim are the graduated stages to the path. And really what these reflections are meant to do is the same thing. They're meant to, to help trigger a wish to get out of this cycle. But I think also mindfulness practice can do it when it's informed by foundational Buddhism, right? These kind of stru uh, foundational structures I'm talking about. Because when we start to see our patterns, we start to see that they repeat. And actually what looks different is the same thing again and again and again and again. And then we start to get exhausted. And what we call that exhaustion in Buddhism is renunciation mind. Because we're not renouncing the world. We're renouncing th this, this circling again and again in our conditioned patterns, right? All built on a sense of a self that doesn't exist in the way it appears, right? So we're going to talk about that more as we get deeper into the teaching. So then what does that lead to? That recognition can lead to a cessation of that circling or that conditioned bind. And that's the third noble truth, right? That cessation is possible. And how do we do it? Through the fourth noble truth, which is the path, right? And there we have the eightfold path, 
or in the Mahayana tradition, we often subsume it into uh, the three pillars of, of conduct or ethics, uh, meditative awareness, and insight, right, or wisdom. Uh, so, so these three things are, are, so that's what mindfulness is. We're being mindful of our conduct. We're being mindful of uh, uh, the present moment, meditative awareness. And then on the deepest level, what's going to cut the conditioned existence itself is we're mindful of the nature of reality itself, which we, we call uh, is, is prajna, uh, to have that kind of insight. And we call that insight shunyata, or emptiness, right? And so that's what mindfulness is for in Buddhism. It's for recognizing, and, and, and not just as an understanding or an experience, but as a realization, our nature of, of, of emptiness. And this emptiness means more like our interdependence. I like this term from Thich Nhat Hanh of interbeing, this sense that, that where does myself and the projector here stop and the world outside me start? So we start to, through mindfulness, we start to see through the mechanisms of, uh, I'll talk a little bit more later about it, perceiver and perceived. That's what we're doing here. Got it? <laughs> so so I'll, I'll leave room for questions later. What I highly recommend, because I'm going to kind of, it's going to be, it's not like a technical talk tonight, but it is a little bit more like, you know, some things. So if you have a little notepad, you could write down like little questions you have as we go on and then 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 I think we could have a richer conversation later. Um, so now going back to, that was the why, right? Uh, you know, one idea of the why, one, one way to talk about it. Now going back to the, 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 the how, then we have the, like I said, we don't have, Buddhism is not a monolithic tradition. There's, there's many Buddhisms. There's many approaches to, to, to practicing what the Buddha taught. Again, I think when we really understand Buddhism, we don't see them in competition. We see the similarities more than anything else. But we have to acknowledge that. And in the Himalayan Buddhist traditions, uh, Tibetan Buddhism, we basically, we also have an approach of the deepening of mindfulness. So the mindfulness on the, the first vehicle, what we often call the Hinayana or, or the foundational or, or vehicle, is a certain kind of mindfulness that we develop, that we need, that's un, un uh, what's the word, uh, indispensable. It's absolutely necessary for then moving to the second kind of mindfulness, which is in the Mahayana or the greater vehicle path. And then we need both of those types of insight, experience and realization to move into the third vehicle of the Vajrayana, which is practiced in Himalayan and Tibetan Buddhism, which where the mindfulness becomes even more refined so in Himalayan Buddhism, it's very specific the way we structure it and frame it because it is progressive in that way, uh, at least the way most teachers teach it, where, where you know, we're going to see that progression a little bit tonight in a different way. But I wanted to name this first because in order to actually have benefit in the Vajrayana, through Vajrayana mindfulness, we first need to have some experience with the other types of mindfulness. Otherwise, there's not really the basis there to go into the more subtle aspects of Vajrayana mindfulness. There's a really great book on these. I was just thinking of, uh, if you want to read more about these three types, um, I believe it's by Anyan Rinpoche, A-N-Y-E-N, but I can't remember the name of the book because it's vague for me, but I remember he was talking about mindfulness in, in sort of like how it deepens through the different vehicles, and it was so beautiful and so good. He's a very, very uh, wonderful and clear teacher. Anyways, he's got, all his books are great, but... Um, can't remember this one. I'll try to think of it. 
So just a little side note, I wanted to talk about that. So also, I, I, you know, now going into the meat of the talk a little bit. Um, now, this is something that all the Buddhisms share, at least what I've seen, is that uh, basically all of the practices of mindfulness, because there's not a singular practice of how we employ mindfulness, they can all uh, basically come into the two categories of shamatha and vipassana, right? So pretty much every you know tradition, lineage, style of Buddhism you're going to study, you're going to see shamatha or vipassana, and pali, samatha, and vipassana, right? Just the the word changes because it's a different language. Same same meaning, more or less. And so shamatha uh, is defined as uh, meditative awareness. Sometimes they define it as calm abiding. Uh, it depends on the translation. But basically, it's, it's the meditation you know. <laughs> it's the meditation taught in all the apps, all the stuff, all the Facebook ads, whatever. It's all there, you know, in the sense of we're training the mind to be here, now, present, and aware, Right? So, so often it's the preliminary to Vipassana, which is the practice of insight. Uh, in, in, uh, uh, sorry, I'm trying to think of another translation. We call it Latong in Tibetan. So in Tibetan it's called Shine and Latong, like that. So both are methods or processes for engaging the awareness, for engaging mindfulness, right? So the first is really stabilizing the awareness, right? Making sure we can hang out and see, right? Then we use that, that stability to penetrate deeper into this, this kind of uh, uh, watchfulness that I was talking about earlier to actually see the nature of something. So shamatha is not that concerned with seeing the nature of something. It's just staying with that thing, the object, you know, without an object, whatever it is, the visualization, and growing our stability of meditative awareness. The Vipassana is where we're really concerned with either an analysis or simply a watching or some other kind of method of Vipassana to penetrate into how reality is actually functioning. And again, this gets back to what I talked about with the, just the foundations of the path, because the foundations here are saying that conditioned existence, part of that is we're experiencing kind of a, a movie or an illusion. We're experiencing some sense of disconnect with how reality is. And so how do we recognize that disconnect? We recognize it through Vipassana meditation. Or uh, I like one of my teachers who uses the term process Vipassana. Because we also have resultant Vipassana, which is actually recognizing the view, recognizing reality. But the process is the meditation. So that's the point, yeah? So you could say in this way, if we're talking about the essence of mindfulness, mindfulness at its root um, is really the prajna of seeing. Prajna being the, the, uh, the Sanskrit for, for wisdom, uh, right? the wisdom nature of reality, uh, wisdom of emptiness. So ultimately in the Mayana tradition, mindfulness is regarded as wisdom. It's regarded as transcendental knowledge. Right? or prajna in Sanskrit. Uh, that's what we regard it as, ultimately, because that's where it's pointing towards. So then, uh, one way we work with the uh, mindfulness, and, and this is kind of, you see the, the, the four objects of mindfulness, the four foundations of mindfulness, really coming more from the Pali tradition, from the Theravada tradition, but all traditions practice it in some way or another. And one way in the Mayana tradition we start to understand it is working with four objects, right? So you have, uh, you know, these four foundations of body, 
uh, feeling, mind, and phenomena, right? So body, feeling, mind, and phenomena. So we can think of them as like foundations for our process of shamatha and vipassana, but we could also think of them as, as objects that make up who we think we are. Because also these objects relate to, uh, for some of you who are a little bit more studied in Buddhism, they relate to the five skandhas or, or the five aggregates, right? Uh, so, so there's a connection here. So when we work with these four objects, we're also working with, with our skandhas. And the skandhas we can just think of in a simpler way of our, our sort of collection of body and mind, right? And so if we're working with one of these objects, we're working with part of the collection of the body. If we're working with, let's say, the foundation, uh, foundation uh, mindful of, of mind, then we're working with part of the mind or consciousness. So the point here is these are ways to work with the, the sort of fullness of our experience and to start to unpeel the layers of w what is happening with our projection, right? Is there a projection? If there is, what is that projection? How does it feel? How does it seem? How do we, can we cognize that? Can we cut through that, right? So that's really the essence here. Um, so you could say um, the essence of these practices is, ex is experiencing these four objects, body, feeling, mind, phenomena, without any barrier. So we're trying to experience them without any barrier between us as the knower and the experienced object. Because right now there is a barrier, right? Like when we, if we pick up a glass, I don't know about for you, but, you know, I, I don't experience this as oneness. I experience this as separateness, right? Because I'm very samsarically conditioned at the moment. I didn't take enough of my anti-samsara pills today. <laughs> so, uh, but, so, so that's really the essence of what I was getting at. Uh, we can think of it also as like a type of coloring where we're coloring the experience. So when we just try to see these objects plainly, we try to watch, uh, witness uh, th uh, through mindful awareness, body, feeling, mind, uh, phenomena, uh, we start to see them without the coloring. So, so again, this is one of, now we're still talking about the purpose of mindfulness. So, so the fundamental simplicity of the object is the essence or nature of mindfulness. So again, in, in the Mahayana, we could talk about it like that, is like there's a fundamental simplicity with the non-duality of the cup and my perception, right? There's a simplicity there. Then again, some of the things I'm going to be describing here are coming a little bit more from a Mahamudra flavor, uh, but nonetheless, uh, uh, I think, applicable to any Mahayana or any Buddhist practice. So... So what happens generally with these four objects, right? I already named them, body, feeling, mind, phenomena. And maybe I'll define them deeper. I think body's pretty easy, right? Just means form. A anything that's just straight form, our, our skin, our blood, our bones, etc. Feeling is, the feel is, is, is essentially the, the feeling tone of the body, of the senses, of our emotions, right? Which usually we define in Buddhism can be of three categories, neutral, pleasant or unpleasant. Um, mind is consciousness. It's that which perceives. It's that which thinks, right? It's that which also cognizes uh, and, and has experience. And then phenomena is what normally gets projected outwards as other than, but phenomena is basically everything 
actually thoughts are considered phenomena in Buddhism. Dreams are also phenomena. So it's anything that we're perceiving as like a, a, a perception of our, you know, reality. Does that make sense? So it's like, what is the perception? It's the phenomena. So it can be a chair, a cup, a person, a thought of a rabbit, <laughs> a movie. Like, see, so it can be both internal and external. The term in Tibetan is nangwa. And so nangwa really has this all-encompassing feature. Yeah? So um, what happens normally, though, and again, this is just back to that conditioning I was talking about, is uh, through clinging to these four objects, uh, basically in a way we're, we're kind of separating into projector and projected, right? That, that's the separation that we would say is the fundamental uh, samsara that's happening, the fundamental bind or circling. And then we cling to these four objects and we relate to them uh, through that in a very neurotic way, in a way that's, that's skewed, in a way that we can't control, uh, like, 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 a, like a monkey you know, destroying a temple or an elephant running wild, right? So it's sort of like very skillful here what the Buddha did, because by teaching us to use these four objects as objects for our, of our meditation, we can start to develop a sane relationship with them. So in one way, we might think, oh, I should do something else to control. Actually, I think that's what the samsaric mind normally thinks, right? It thinks, okay, we're going to do something else to control these. We need some other kind of thing, maybe some Clorox. <laughs> Sorry, I had to say it. Uh, you know, some Lysol just to come in and, you know, inject it right in and it's going to fix, right? So, but anyways, um, sorry, bad joke. <laughs> so, so uh, but we can see the Buddha is so skillful here because we're using the very things that, that are, that actually like uh, our subject or the subject of our kleshas, we're using them to wake up. It's very skillful, right? So we, we would use none other than these objects that normally cause us neurosis, we're gonna also we're gonna use them now to create sanity or to sort of come into our innate sanity. Um, great. So going a little bit deeper into the perceiver and perceived, and again, just stick with me here. I realize this is a little bit more than your sort of uh, corner meditation store mindfulness talk, and, and I'm doing that on purpose because you can get that anywhere. You know, there's there's hundreds of apps now where you can get that. Uh, it's all over everywhere. Uh, this you can get too, you know, but but uh, I prefer to go a little deeper. So so now we can look into what's going on specifically with each of these objects, right? Because like I said, these objects right now are kind of our basis for neurosis. But they can also become our basis for freedom, or our basis to recognize wisdom. That's the point of mindfulness practice. So, the, so in general, the, the object of the body uh, serves as our main base for clinging to oneself, right? And we can see this really clearly. For me, it's definitely clear. Like, if you poke me with a pin, I'm going to freak out. <laughs> I don't, you know, it doesn't feel good. I've been cut open in very small surgeries, and it's like one of the most awful feelings, you know, even with anesthesia. Uh, because it's just like, it's like you feel like you're being cut open or whatever. And I know that's maybe a strong example, but you, you get what I mean. You know, we're, we're very attached to our bodies. It's our shell. It's our, it's our home for this life, right? It's our only home we, we've known or can remember. So it's really the basis of clinging. Then we add to that the second uh, object, which is feeling. Uh, 
And so then the feeling is something to be experienced by the self, which is orienting to the body, right? So the feeling is experienced by the body. And then we're associating our uh, selfhood with the body. So of course, then the self experiences the feeling. Then we have mind, and uh, this particular commentator, Dzogchen Polnup Rinpoche, um, I like how he frames it. He, he says, he says we relate, uh, the mind is what we relate to as the real self. <laughs> so he makes a distinction between the basis of clinging is the body. It's kind of our basis of selfhood. But actually when we look enough, like even somebody just who's been meditating a little while, they're going to start to be able to see through that you know, a little bit, and st but then they're still going to feel someone behind their eyes, or they're going to feel some something in the brain, or some sense of like there's a me in the consciousness, right? So he was saying this becomes the the kind of the real self in the sense like the more subtle formation of it. And then, um, you know, he was giving some reasons that normally when we point to self, we usually point to our consciousness. So you know, sometimes we point to our body, but often we mean something like deeper than that. And so he said, this is the actual object of self-clinging, right? The main one. And then finally, uh, the fourth object of phenomena. So this is when, uh, again, it's a little deep end Buddhism. It's a little bit more of a Mahamudra approach, but I think it's quite beneficial to talk about it because, again, we're, we're, we're in a, we're kind of, we're, we're going to see different, how different yanas or vehicles practice mindfulness a little bit differently. So ordinarily, we relate to phenomena as the basis of confusion. But from this perspective, phenomena are seen as the basis of both confusion and liberation. So this is a bit confusing. <laughs> but basically, normally we would relate to phenomena as like, okay, this cup is, I love. It's absolutely beautiful and amazing. And so I develop all sorts of craving to it, right? So it becomes the basis for my confusion. But when we go into deeper in Buddhism, especially into Mahamudra and, and, and some other traditions, we also recognize the phenomena itself. It, it actually has no quality of being amazing or bad or whatever. So it can be the basis for confusion when our mind is confused about it, but it can also be the basis of nirvana when our mind is not confused. So this is a little tricky because in some Mahamudra teachings, they establish a, like a pure relative. Or, or like there's a there's a there is a phenomena that we can perceive as as uh, uh, non-dualistic or or, or uh, not sort of separate, and, and so that's what that that's what that is referring to, and I think it's the reason I wanted to bring it up is I think it's good to think of it this way because it it starts us off on the right track of work when we work with that final foundation of mindfulness which we're not going to do tonight we just don't have time. Um, we're really working with our perception in how we're relating to something as a subject-object experience. So it goes way deep in, in, into the teachings on Shunyata there. Um, so samsara's game of illusion arises from a lack of wisdom, as I already pointed out. And it arises in our relationships with these four objects. That's really the essential point here, right? So... What I wanted to present on tonight, just to now bring it way back down to earth, literally, <laughs> because I know, you know, it went out there a little bit uh, into the, what I call deep end Buddhism, um, is sort of this idea of the first foundation uh, as, as what they often refer to in, in sutras and commentaries, sort of like taming the elephant, right? 
And this is the first foundation of mindfulness of body, where we're using the object of the body as a foundation for our awareness practice. Why? Because we realize our mind is sort of like a, like a raging wild elephant at the moment, and we need to tame it. So this is really the first step. And this is why you see within the, the sutra on the four foundations of mindfulness, the Buddha's advice, the first advice is to, to attend to the breathing body. And why you see in, in every app and every sort of you know, program out there for meditation, the start of it. Because it's impossible to go to this fourth foundation that I was, or I shouldn't say impossible, it's very, very challenging to go to this fourth foundation of the inseparability of, of samsara and nirvana you know, in the way we perceive phenomena um, without some groundedness, right? Without some ability to just sort of sit and be. And that's what the first foundation is really all about. And it really, I mean, I don't know about you. For me, it's, it's really, you know, it's one of my main practices. It's absolutely, uh, I'm not above it. And, and, I, and I, I don't think, I don't know if anyone gets above it. I think it just becomes sort of embedded in what we do. So, so then within this first foundation, I wanted to, there can be some, ways of relating to the different vehicles, like I said. So we can have like an outer form of how we're relating to the body as an object, an inner, and then an innermost. And, and this is kind of, we don't have to worry about it too much and get into too much philosophy, but this relates to a little bit more like a, a Theravada approach, um, a Mahayana approach, and, and then sort of like the, the, the sort of more innermost Mahayana approach. So the outer form of, of relating to the foundation of body or the, the object of body through mindfulness is really just about groundedness, like I already said. So we're, we're working to calm down the wildness of our physical existence. So what do we do? We follow the breath. We watch the breath in the, in the body. So we already did this tonight, right? We practiced this. We were working with this. So we bring the, the, our attention into the present and we bring it into what it actually is rather than thinking about what it is. So it's very simple. It's just not easy to do. Because what happens when we try to be mindful of the breathing body? We're not mindful of it. And then, you know, we think about it. I notice what a lot of meditators go through, and I went through it myself, is, is often like we're thinking about the breathing body as opposed to just being with the breathing body. That's why, as you saw, I really like to work with my practice and, and with the students I teach regularly in just simply sitting in the body, like not even worrying about meditation so much. Because actually the first practice we did, maybe some of you were able to connect with this mindfulness of body a little easier. Because you don't make it into some big thing. You just simply sit and be, right? You rel uh, as one teacher, Mingi Rinpoche, says, you just relax with awareness. You put those two together. And this is all about groundedness. This is all about, you know, kind of the elephant's still wild. It's still pissed. It still wants to run around. But you're giving it uh, um, some, some sort of ground, some nice, soft leaves as like somewhere it, it might take a break on. <laughs> it might lay down and sort of uh, decide, hey, I'm, this looks beautiful. Or you give it a nice little pond to swim in for a moment. So we do this by bringing... Uh, our attention or mindfulness into the present through the breath and through the breathing body. So we could say we simply relate here with our physical existence, uh, right? That's all it is. We're just simply relating with it. We're being with it. So again, like I said, uh, in, in a sutra, the Buddha says, uh, uh, 
he has this, this quote where it says, when you see, just see, when you smell, just smell. When you touch, simply touch, and when you feel, simply feel, right? It's that simple, right? So then we have the inner form of working with the object of the body in this first foundation. So now it's getting a little bit more into the principles of, of what we're trying to have insight into. And this is uh, in common with both the Theravada and Mayana, where we're, we're looking into and we're trying to see directly, experientially, not just understand, right? I want to make a distinction here. Not just understand, but have an experience of the body's impermanent nature. And so this is the first characteristic, right? Uh, of, the th of the three main characteristics of, of really what we're trying to produce uh, through the Buddhist path. We have impermanence, uh, uh, understanding and, and experiencing the nature of dukkha or unsatisfactoriness, and then uh, emptiness. And sometimes they, we can say anatta or not self. So that's really what, what's happening through over time through just being, just witnessing. And so this is the, the inner form uh, where we're, we're witnessing the impermanent nature uh, which is this subtle experience of the mindfulness of the body. Then, as that progresses, again, we can look at these as a progression, not like, we're, not like you have to go home and do three different practices. You would start with the first, and they naturally lead into the next. Then you have the innermost form. So then, this is really at the Mayana level now. I think I misspoke earlier. So here's where we go beyond the simple physical presence of, of body, and we start to relate to the... Uh, we we relate to the way the body is experienced. So again, going back to this talk on perceiver and perceived. So here, the way we experience our body is simply our perception, our reflection, our projection. So this would be for a meditator, again, just to point out so it's not too confusing, this is like the natural progression of how the mindfulness practice would progress. It would go from this more outer, just witnessing the, literally the form and settling. And then once the mind settles, then we have an ability to see deeper through awareness into the impermanent nature, and also uh, it's, it's dukkha. Then we start to see it's, it's more open dimensional nature, what we would say, it's, it's nature of shunyata or emptiness. And we start to see where the perceiver, the perception, the projection and reflection is happening. So I talked a lot about this earlier about, you know, perceiver, perceived, projection. I'm not gonna say more about it, but that's what would be happening on an experiential level. I, and, and again, just to point out, this is not just understanding. This is actually happening as an experience born of a lot of effort in meditation. Uh, in Tibetan, we have, um, let me see, I want to pull up these terms. These terms are quite helpful, but um, one of my friends who's a translator uh, helped me to, to kind of get these... Uh, uh, figured out. So we have go, nyong, and tok in Tibetan. And what this refers to, go refers to understanding, like a conceptual understanding, nyong to uh, direct experience that fluctuates, meaning it comes and goes, and tokpa, which really refers to unchanging realization. And so this is kind of the process as a, as a Buddhist meditator uh, we're, we're going through, especially the way Mayana Buddhism and Tibetan Buddhism lays it out. Because first we have the understanding. That's like what we're doing here. We're, we're growing that, that fullness of understanding. Then moving into experience through practicing what we understood, right? And then as that experience develops and stops fluctuating as much, then it starts to move into tukpa or actual realization, right? So, so what, what I've talked about so far is, you know, you can have 
the settling, you can have an, a, an understanding of that, then you can have an experience of that, and then you can have a realization of that. We would call like the, in the, in the Sutriyana path, like the, the realization of calm abiding, right? Uh, or the stabilization of it, going through the nine stages. Then in the, in the Vipassana aspect, the more relating to the impermanence, and then this, this projector and projected, right? Uh, the, the empty nature of phenomena of self. This would be, there's an understanding, we study emptiness, there's a, an experience as we practice what we've studied, and then we gain uh, unchanging sort of uh, 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 realization after a lot of effort and practice. So I just wanted to point that out, um, just as a framework to understand our practice and context. So, through the practice of reflecting on our physical existence here, just working with the first foundation, um, our discipline of mindfulness, like I said, develops into seeing with awareness. So the seeing here means seeing the nature. The nature of projection, the nature of projector, perceiver, perceived, right? That's what that means. Seeing with awareness. So we can even say, what is Buddhist mindfulness? It's, it's the practice or the process of seeing with awareness. Again, Buddhist mindfulness is the process or practice of seeing with awareness. We, we, we could sum it up all into that, I, th I think. So here we're seeing much deeper, a much deeper level of the physical, right? As we're mindful of body. We're discovering the true nature of the experience of body. So like I said, at this level, we're dealing with our projections. We're de uh, we see that the physical world we experience is not necessarily solid and real. We start to actually experience uh, the projection of how our mind projects self and other, projects cup, etc. Right? And again, in Mariamaka and, and Middleway teachings, we have a lot of logical analysis for analyzing that. But here we're not talking about that. We're just talking about direct being with the body and how through mindfulness this progresses over time. So I think that's all I really wanted to focus on tonight because um, I think that's enough. And, and obviously there's, there's the second you know, foundation, third and fourth, but I think that's plenty to work with. And so maybe what we can do is uh, do a few questions and, and sort of discuss a little bit. And then if there's a little leftover time, we'll meditate on the first foundation and you know, close. So go for it <laughs> if you have anything. <laughs> Yeah, I have a little question here. I mean, you at the end, you talked about emptiness. That's kind of the ultimate goal of this meditation, right? But in order to um, grasp emptiness, you need a lot of analysis. And then usually it says when you do an analytical meditation, that's like a discursive thing. So you kind of, you know, your, your mind is kind of agitated. You go all over the place, you analyze. And that's kind of counterproductive to this signal pointed concentration that you also want to deal up at the same time. So there's some kind of contradiction almost there. No, there's not a contradiction. I but mean, you, it's but you, see. you have to combine them into a single state of mind. I mean, you, you analyze, but yeah. you have single point concentration. Yeah, I understand what you mean. I think this is more, a, it can seem like a contradiction in, in the study of the material, but in the practice, it's not really a contradiction. Right, but but I'll go more deeper into your your question from like an understanding perspective because that might be helpful. So basically, we have gom is the Tibetan for meditation, right? 
uh, it means to familiarize your mind with, with, with something virtuous. So actually, really what we have is uh, chegom, jokom, and sometimes shargom. Shargom is a term that refers more to uh, the uh, tantric practice, like visualization practice. So really in the context we're in, we're talking about chegom and jokom. So chegom really is referring to uh, what you, uh, um, some kind of analysis, some kind of uh, where, we're, where we're using the conceptual mind or in a, in a very strong way through logical analysis or in a less conceptual way just through simply watching and bearing witness. So both can actually be analysis and are considered chegom. Jokom is more like a... a can, some people translate it as like resting meditation or it could be like focus meditation. Um, so it's sort of these, these aspects and these are what we're alternating uh, most of the time in meditation, whether it's the Lam Rim or something else or, or analysis of emptiness, where we have some kind of uh, uh, process of insight in the Chegom and then the Jokom kind of like embodies that process once we reach a point of falling into, uh, you know, seeing. Right? Maybe we'll just use that word, seeing the nature. Uh, then, then we rest in that or we focus on that, wh whatever you want to call it. So your question is a little bit more around chegom. Now, chegom the w has a lot of different ways of practicing chegom. There's not just one way. Uh, An analysis can mean a lot of different things uh, uh, to different practices and styles of chegom. So, for instance, in in uh, when we're when we're studying uh, the, the tenets, you know, we're 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 going through first. We're trying to have uh, this this understanding, like this first part. Then we're then when we meditate on it, we're actually alternating chigom and jokom with each tenet system, right? And usually, what we're starting with is more of an a, a, a stronger analysis, where we're we're really picking apart maybe a, like a, a like a section of a text from Dharmakirti, or we're picking up uh, picking apart a section from Nagarjuna, but we're not picking it apart to sort of endlessly think about it. We're trying to use the, we're analyzing to try to use the phrase to kind of drop us into seeing beyond duality. Then again, you can have like the diamond sliver argument or all these different ways or, of, or Chandrakirti, like the, where we analyze the chariots, you can analyze the skandhas in that way or the form or whatever. So that's one style. But you also have the chigom that's exactly how I described, which is a little bit more like the meditator style uh, in the sense of, uh, what do you call it? Um, they call it like a, um, a kusalu, kusalu or kusali meditator, like kind of a simple meditator. Now, what you see here is something in common with the Theravada tradition, right? Because what I did is, it wasn't just Tibetan. That was the actual presentation that was kind of both Theravada and Mayana, sort of. So the first thing, the, the, the what was it? The first step of working with the, the first foundation, the outer form of body, right? That's more of the Theravada approach. We still do it in the Mahayana, but actually we use a little bit, depending on the tradition, we might use analysis first, like a stronger analysis, like what you're talking about, uh, to produce an insight. Or we might just uh, use this second type and third type, where we try to go directly to uh, perceiving something's impermanence and or its uh, empty nature. So, like, for instance, in Mahamudra Vipassana, the Chegom they do is a little bit, it's a little bit more subtle. So it's not as like heavy-handed as the chigom you're talking about. 
it's a little bit more subtle where you you might just look at what you're doing is you're in the state for instance in uh uh losan choki geltsen's text on on the the gandan mahamudra from the galuk tradition he, he kind of talks about first you have to have you have to have some stability in shamatha right and then once your mind is stable and it's kind of you're able to work with both the moving mind uh, sorry the unmoving mind and the moving mind then what you do is you kind of place your mind and it doesn't waver but there's like a little fish he calls it that starts to move through the mind and to, to analyze but this doesn't mean think that's why it's very tricky because it's tricky with the english words too because we might think analyze always means think here what it means is actually watchfulness in the same way i was talking about earlier where the mind starts to watch for this, you know, we call it the gaksha in the Galuk tradition, they use that term, like the object to be refuted, this self that is coming as this strong sense of like, I am here in the form, or I am here in the, the mind, or, or whatever, one of these objects. So that's a little bit more of a subtler kind of chegom. You're not beating the thing over the head with it. You're kind of just watching. So that's more what this style is. And, and that's why I think uh, it's more a little bit what they do in the four foundations in the Theravada tradition, from what I know of. Does that make any sense? <laughs> yes. So it sounds like it's more like non-conceptual meditation, that you're not really having an internal dialogue with yourself, but you're kind of watching okay. it. And, yeah, like that. Yeah. Good question, yeah. I call it less conceptual. Okay. Because, again, it's how you define concept here. Because how they define non-concept, once you're getting into oh the watching practices i mean for lack of a better word you know the insight practices where where there's you're not thinking the analysis you're just simply bearing witness um the the non-conceptual is when you you've cut through into the seeing that's what we consider the non-conceptual emptiness itself so it's still slight but it's maybe we could say like slightly conceptual and it's, it's definitely less conceptual than analyzing through an argument or a logical reasoning yeah but both, you know, in the Tibetan tradition, we, we say both are necessary. Uh, for, for many lamas, they would say, in order to do the second type, the one taught more in the Mahamudra traditions, you need to have done the first type a little bit, at least some. Because it gives the, it gives the mind the, the sort of shirup, the, 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 you know, the, the intelligence, and, and then the prajna or the kind of ability to cut through and have a lot of sharpness. This is what's so precious about... Um, uh, uh, practicing analytical meditation with the lam rim is it really makes the mind quite sharp and 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 then when we apply that later it's like the mind's much more flexible you know anyways a good good question yeah thank you hi scott hey <laughs> i uh i just had a question sure um in uh, vipassana meditation uh, for example, when you're when you're doing the Lamrim meditations, and you're 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 analyzing all you know like like precious human life, death and impermanence. How do you apply the? You talked about the uh, the body, feeling, mind, and phenomena. How do you apply that to the meditations? To each of the meditations. Um. I mean, you you don't. They're kind of like different practices, maybe. That's the way I would put it. It's sort of like, like when you're doing these, you're simply just uh, like how I laid it out. You're you're bearing witness to the outer form of the body, right? You're just you're just sitting with the body, 
And again, the first step in in, in the sutra uh, of the four foundations of mindfulness is to bear witness to the breath in order to create stability, in order to have, which is shamatha practice. So it's actually not vipassana. It, it's sort of like first we need the stability of meditative awareness and that to be somewhat stable. Then we start to kind of turn from just the present moment into sort of that watching happens deeper into the experience of the form. So it's just a little bit of a, you know, it's a different um, lineage of practice. It's not like they're not in competition. They're, I think, mutually beneficial. The Lam Rim, I think the insights we have are more into renunciation mind, bodhicitta, and emptiness. And then in the Lam Rim especially, it emphasizes uh, more what, what Urs was saying, where it's like uh, we're, we're seeing uh, the wisdom nature by rubbing two sticks together through analysis. And then as we rub, as we rub, as we rub, the, the analyzer and what we're analyzing catches fire and dissolves. And then we can have a, a chance to see direct uh, wisdom, the wisdom of emptiness. But it's a different style. Yeah. So, so again, yeah, it's good to know context, but, but they also don't have to be in competition. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. You're welcome. Yeah. I, I think doing both is good, personally. And I think for, for Westerners, it's really good to experiment with this kind for a while. Because often we're overthinkers already. And so, <laughs> you know, just settling into the body and learning to have some experience of, of ourselves directly as impermanent can be so powerful. And, and, then, and then, of course, so it doesn't all just stay up here. You know, I, th I think it's important. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Anything else? Thoughts in your mind, questions, doubts, complaints? <laughs> okay, so maybe what we'll do is we'll d practice now, yeah? Because... Uh, there's a lot of words <laughs> and so uh, I think if we practice we can maybe get a little taste and um, and I think we'll practice for 10 or 15 minutes and then maybe we'll come back to a discussion so maybe we can sort of see what we see and then if there's any questions after that and then we can close yeah so I'll guide it a little bit and then we can just simply uh, uh, have some silence so maybe mute your mic if you haven't already mute your audio um, so mainly I think what we're going to work with is this outer form of body right what I emphasize is uh, working to calm down the wildness of our physical existence sort of taming the elephant a little bit and here we're trying to bring about a certain level of groundedness but we can't push for the groundedness you can't seek the groundedness so I, I kind of you know <laughs> it's kind of a paradox where we're looking for groundedness, but we can't seek it. We just have to let it happen through the practice, okay? So go ahead and find a posture that's relaxed yet alert. And if you wanna open the eyes, close the eyes, half open, whatever you like, it's fine. And we're just simply going to allow our attention to begin to come into the body. So we practiced actually with the breath already. We were working with mindfulness of breath, which is this practice as well. But we're going to do it without breath now, just to kind of change it up. 
So what I want you to do is feel your feet on the floor. Feel the entire extent of the feet on the floor. If you're sitting on cross-legged on the ground, you're feeling maybe the sides of the feet, the toes. If you're sitting in a chair and the feet are flat on the ground, you're feeling the soles of your feet connected to the earth. And so the whole practice here is simply feel the feet as the feet. And we place the guardian of mindfulness with us, which again isn't so much this aspect of watching, like I already repeated. It's more this aspect of being watchful. What's it like to be watchful of your feet? So the challenge here is when we try to be watchful, our monkey mind probably wants to be anything but watchful. So it's the same as when we're using an object like the breath and we become distracted. So we just notice that. That's also part of the practice. But now we're emphasizing a little bit more of the Vipassana element, less of the shamatha. Simply just being watchful. And here we're not really looking for entertainment, which can get interesting. I think the feet are a great choice to work with because they're not so entertaining. They're pretty boring. <laughs> Usually they're pretty neutral for most of us as far as the feeling tone. So notice what, it, what it's like to shift if you're kind of wondering what this watch, what's the difference between watching and being watchful. See if you can experiment a little bit with that. That's what I'm doing right now. Watching is a little bit like uh, we're uninvolved. We're trying to penetrate in, through into something. We're trying to find some goal, some result. We're trying to find something. Watchful is a little bit more <clears throat> laid back, more open. We're still with the feet, 
our attention, our mindfulness is with the feet, our awareness is aware of the feet. But there's a fullness there. There's a sense of tentiveness. Like experience can just unfold. It's free to unfold as it wants to. Your feet may just start singing and dancing. Who knows? We don't care. We're just being watchful. Maybe if you'd like, you can start to expand into the rest of the lower body, the legs, hips, the seat below you. Just stay with that for a moment, widening out and up into the body, and just being watchful. Remembering that we are acting, there's a very strong intent and deliberateness to what we're doing. But this act is also an experience and these are happening at the same time. So experience and act, the act of watchfulness is happening at the same time. Moving up the body, if you'd like, into the torso, <clears throat> eventually into the head. And if you can, <clears throat> just sitting with the entire body, watchful of our entire form. Just remembering the intent here, not the goal. Intent is very different than goal. The intent is not to calm down, though that might be a side benefit to what you're doing right now. The intent is to see with awareness, to see clearly. Now we're in the Vipassana aspect. We're just simply being watchful of experience. So we're not trying to produce impermanence. We might or might not see that right now. It doesn't really matter. The point is just sitting with this watchfulness. Open. No goal just effort. 
Now you may have already noticed some of the second foundation of feeling. Sometimes it's really hard to separate form and feeling. As came up in the teaching, the form is kind of this basis for clinging. The feeling is sort of what we perceive based off of that basis. So they often come together. So it's okay now to incorporate it uh, deliberately. Into our watchfulness. The same as we begin to incorporate mind. So not blocking thoughts, just simply applying this mindfulness of watchfulness. And finally, any phenomena that we perceive at this point, we may work with opening the eyes, or you can keep them closed if you like, and just simply bearing witness. So there's a total openness here to experience, yet there's still a watchfulness. So if you've managed to open your eyes, just starting to gently shift the practice from a formal watchfulness just to a post-meditation watchfulness. If you haven't opened your eyes, you can open them and just see what it's like to experience all the senses open without letting this mindfulness or watchfulness recede allowing it to function, for everything to coexist. Okay. Thanks, everyone. <laughs> um, so if there's anything you want to talk about before we close out, uh, this is the time to Speak your mind. Yeah, so I'll 
all four foundations can be used on in the that first level are almost like tranquil tranquility objects in a sense like even this even as we brought in all the objects we it wasn't going into sort of uh like vipassana we were still just kind of with it it was still in that first for this sit we were still kind of in that first stage of uh forgot what you called it but like yeah you had a you i forgot the name you were using in the the first round like one two three like uh oh yeah i think maybe maybe just to clarify it for you um that's yeah that's still that's vipassana still Okay. Actually, actually, it's a good question because part of the outer form is shamatha and part of it is vipassana. So, kind of the style that we just did was a little bit more aimed at the vipassana aspect or the vipassana process, because the watchfulness is a big click. Like that's a big red flag. Like when, like a good red flag, <laughs> when when you when the watchfulness is happening, it's it's a little bit more insight driven, or 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 you know, insight process driven, as opposed to when the mindfulness is simply just in the moment being mindful of something, you know, there still is watchfulness, but it's, it's like the emphasis is more on the stability of present moment awareness, where when, when we're doing what we were just doing, it wasn't really the, the emphasis, at least, you know, I was trying, maybe it didn't come across clear in the guided meditation is the watchfulness wasn't on, on sort of stability it was more on letting things flow and then you're bearing witness or or you know in this experience of watchfulness that's uh, one way to delineate shamatha and vipassana there's many different ways and 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 there's yeah yeah okay yeah i was that just curious sense. yeah yeah that makes sense because yeah. i you know in my, in my head it's more like heavy-handed like looking for insight of imperm you know like uh, uh impermanence or which did occur, you know, which just, just occurs if you, yeah. if you do provide the, the, the conditions for it. Um, yeah, that's a good point. It can happen either way. And that's kind of maybe back to Ur's question too, is sometimes we use more like hmm, heavy hand by heavy handed. I don't mean necessarily like a comparison or like worse, but sometimes we're using a heavier analysis. And then impermanence can be born out of that, but this is a less of a heavy analysis. But you could say the watchfulness itself is a kind of analysis. It's just very subtle, and and less conceptual. And and um, you know, one thing I would say too is, is a lot of times when we're doing logical analysis, we have to be careful because what we could be doing too is like um we're just simply coming into more understanding remember how i described in tibetan those first those three types understanding experience and realization we we have to be careful not to uh misunderstand or or miss i can't think of the right word not diagnose but you know basically think we're having an experience when actually it's just an understanding does that make sense and, and the wall between the two can be a little murky at first so we just have to keep going but 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 it gets clearer as we go. Experience is is non-conceptual, or we could say it's sort of uh, it's not non-conceptual in the sense of emptiness. It's non-conceptual in the sense of like it's not an understanding. It's like a I don't know some some some. I'm still looking for terms on this because we don't have a term in Tibetan to represent like intu intuition or something like that. 
but there are some Theravada monastics I really like. Um, I think it's, it's not Pico Bodhi. It's, um, what's his name? Ajahn Sumedho, I think. He uses intuitive wisdom. I really like, like terms like that because in English we need something to describe what an experience is where we understand, but it's not conceptual. You know, we don't have that so much in the English. Do we have that in the English language? I don't think it exists. But, but I mean, is that like a common word? Is that something in the in the lexicon or just? Yeah, not very common. Yeah, I think it's being people are now. Terms are coming up, you know, because we're people are developing them, you know. Yeah, yeah. I like body knowledge, but it's cool. Anywho, <laughs> what is it? Insight. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the that's the term we 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 usually translate, uh, uh, you know. And then, yeah, that maybe that's sufficient because insight can be conceptual or non conceptual. I guess, yeah, yeah, to experience exactly, yeah, 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 yeah. Good. <laughs> we came back around to the original. I like that. <laughs> Okay, well, thanks everyone.